Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. We've got an absolute belter of an episode today. It's all about the terrible, bloody Battle of Talavera in 1809. But we're telling the story differently. We're using one of the classic Peninsular War novels, Bernard Cornwall's Sharp's Eagle, to explore the battle. Myself and Marcus Cribb will be exploring which parts of the novel actually follow the history of the battle and which elements are completely unrealistic. I first discovered the Sharp books as a young boy in the early 90s. I was inspired. As a working class lad myself with a hankering for a commission in the army, the books and the TV show ticked all of my boxes. I never did fulfil my dream of becoming an army officer, but my love for the Sharp books never waned. I'm assuming that you've probably read one or two of them yourself, or seen something of the TV show. If not, I highly recommend them. Many of the episodes can actually be found on YouTube in their entirety, some of them. Just to give you a bit of background, Bernard Cornwall is a British former journalist who, after quitting his job with the BBC, started to write so that he could try and make money while living in the US without a green card. He'd always been a fan of the Hornblower series, set during the same period, but about the exploits of a Royal Navy officer. Cornwall decided he wanted to do something similar, but about the army. What followed is a series of 24 books about the exploits of our super-tough, super-handsome, up-from-the-ranks rifles officer as he stabs, shoots and shags his way across Portugal, Spain, Belgium, India and South America. Brilliant stuff. So before we get started with the interview today, I just wanted to remind you that my new book is now available. You can get it from Amazon and from Apple Books. I think it's $3.99 at the minute. There's even a paperback version. Uh, if you've got a loved one who can't get enough Napoleonic military history for their Christmas present, you know what to get them. Just search for the Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsular War and you'll find it. The final three chapters actually cover the battle we're discussing today, Talavera. I also want to quickly thank the designer of my new logo, Nick Turner, he's a fellow military history geek like us, like us. If you're interested in hiring him for a logo or other design work, you can just visit his website, nickisadesigner.com. Okay, enough of my blathering. Let's get over to my good friend Marcus Cribb, at mcribhistory, if you're on Twitter. In case you don't know him, he's actually the manager of Apsley House, which was Wellington's old residence in London. And he's an all-round expert on all things Peninsula War. Be sure to look him up, he's a brilliant guy. So Marcus, surely you remember the first time you came across uh, Richard Sharp. Can you tell us about that? How did you get it, get into his books or TV series? I think I found them almost like simultaneously, kind of showing uh, my relative age. I caught the, the last few on TV playing on uh, Friday, Saturday nights on ITV in the UK and uh, catching them. But it was right at the end of the series. I think it was... Um, Honor, Justice, Waterloo, and then waited a while. And then the Indian ones didn't come out for many years later. And in the in-between, I then went back and read the original series of books chronologically. I think even then they had, they hadn't, Bernard Cornwall hadn't released the prequels of uh, India with Tiger, Prey and Trafalgar. So I read them all through. And about the time that I finished that, along with Life in Between, the Indian episodes were going to be starting to come out and the new books as well with the prequels and the kind of crowbarred in episodes, which actually I, I really enjoy those books as well. So it's all kind of been a huge part of my growing up and then a, 
bit of a secret inspiration for my uh, job and career as well. Because <laughs> haven't you, you've done some reenactment with the 95th, is that right? Yeah, I'm relatively new to the, the reenactment world. Um, had one full year with a little bit of taste of either end um, as well. But yeah, I, I kind of shamelessly couldn't choose anyone else apart from 95th. Though the, the guys and girls in red look really glorious and we've got an attached uh, artillery uh, battery and rocket troop. I kind of wanted to go green. See what Baker <laughs> Rifle feels like. You know, the smell of it, the, the weight of it. Is it short? Yeah, it is actually. And what's it like to fire with a shako on? Okay, it's, it's actually really weird. So I can see why the cast threw their shakos away and, and, and they just wore the little uh, floppy forage hats and things like that. You kind of get a bit of a good feel for it. It's nice. Yeah, that's one. I've never had the opportunity to do any reenacting, but that's one thing I think uh, I would love is just that inside knowledge of what it was like that you don't really get from reading books, you know. And I think, I think that's really um, undervalued as a historian's tool. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you, your books can conjure up amazing, amazing imagination, but the smells, the sounds are hard to add in. And on my first weekend, I was having a few shots of the baker and biting the cartridge. You can taste uh, the black powder. And then uh, I think we were wiped out after attacking a French column. We were exposed. And then the cavalry bared down on us and we were all having a sword fight using a baker rifle and then afterwards lying down. And it's these horses, all of a sudden it's terrifying. These big mustachioed guys have grown their uh, things that look like hazards and they're coming at you with a sword. It, it really changes your perspective on the battle, definitely. Brilliant. Well, I think because we've got a lot to get through today, let's crack on. And I wanted to look at our first introduction to Richard Sharp where we find him in the first bookshop's eagle as a lieutenant commanding a group of riflemen during the spring of 1809. Now, I don't know if you recall, but his band had uh, allegedly been left behind during the retreat to Karuna. And, and this is the first time we meet Lieutenant Richard Sharp. Let me, let me try and read from the book here. Lieutenant Richard Sharp, waiting for orders in his billet on the outskirts of town, watched the cavalry sheathe their sabres as the last spectators were left behind. And then he turned back to the job of unwinding the dirty bandage from his thigh. As the last few inches peeled stickily away, some maggots dropped to the floor and Sergeant Harper knelt to pick them up before looking at the wound. Healed, sir. Beautiful, Sharp grunted. The sabre cut had become nine inches of puckered scar tissue, clean and pink against the darker skin. He picked off a last fat maggot and gave it to Harper to put safely away. There, my beauty. Well fed you are. I won't do an Irish accent. <laughs> Sergeant Harper closed the tin and looked up at Sharp. You are lucky, sir. That was true, thought Sharp. The French hussar had nearly ended him. The man's blade halfway through a massive downstroke when Harper's rifle bullet had lifted him from the saddle and the Frenchman's grimace, framed by the weird pigtails, had turned to sudden agony. So I'm going to skip forward there a little bit to, to ask you, Marcus, was, was, are you aware were maggots a sort of regular treatment for, for wounds in those days or is there a bit of creative license there? Uh, medicine was really mixed. Uh, maggots definitely were used. Um, the other thing that they used uh, quite commonly were leeches still, almost like medieval treatment. Mm. I always and think of uh, Blackadder when I hear of leeches. You know the episode of Blackadder? The leech farmer in Blackadder. Um, and that's what I was thinking of. But it's really strange because you've got this mix of like development of technology with rifling inside a, you know, a Baker rifle and rockets. But they're still using medieval functions. And there's even cases um, quite, quite well recorded of officers being wounded and uh, they've got internal bleeding. 
And one of the treatments, they think they've got too much blood, so they'll do medical bleeding or apply leeches near the wound. Oh, bleed me, damn you, pardon! Which is obviously only going to weaken them further. So, um, but maggots, there is scientific um, evidence for it. You know, it's removing the, um, the dead uh, skin and preventing that further infa uh, infection. Um, every regiment would have had a surgeon and, in theory, two assistant surgeons who would have been qualified doctors. So they weren't just being left to the likes of uh, Sergeant Harper to uh, apply themselves, but there would have been a certain amount of self-help when the regiment's 600 men strong and they've only got one to three doctors looking after them, uh, especially uh, some of the rifles were attached and detached. So, yeah, they would have needed to pick up some... Uh, some old wise remedies kind of thing, yes. Yeah, okay, well, that's, that's interesting because uh, a little-known fact that I picked up on recently um, was that the casualty rate, or the death rate, should I say, amongst, uh, among soldiers in the peninsula was actually very similar to the First World War, which a lot of people don't realise. And I think a lot of that was to do with, uh, to, to do with illness, wasn't it? You know, and, and common diseases that these days, you know, a soldier would be given some antibiotics and crack on actually wiped out, you know, thousands of soldiers. Uh, it was a mixture of the climate and the diseases and the lack of the immune system with them and the medicine. Yeah, uh, at certain campaigns, it does change battle to campaign. Um, casualties could be as high out of the field as they were during a battle, uh, especially with the added on effect from wounds received. So, yeah, quite common that soldiers could be wounded on a march and, and die from a, a broken bone that they've fallen over from. So, and never mind just disease they've picked up from local food, local water. It was a, a really common uh, procedure that I said the men weren't going to be with the regiment because they're wounded. Yeah, yeah, no, crazy really. Um... So I think let's let's move on. So that was a sort of strange introduction to Sharp, really, wasn't it? You know, it was kind of him having maggots picked out of his wounds. I thought it was a <laughs> counterintuitive way to introduce your 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 hero. But here's a his yes, exactly. Um, but it does get better. So the next time we see him, here's the here's the description of of Sharp that Bernard Cornwall wrote. The Baker rifle was his mark. It set him aside from other officers and 16-year-old ensigns fresh in their bright new uniforms looked warily at the tall black-haired lieutenant with the slung rifle and the scar, which except when he smiled gave his face a look of grim amusement. Some wondered if the stories were true, stories of Serangapatam and Asai, of Vimero and Lugo, but one glance from the apparently mocking eyes or a sight of the worn grips on his weapons stopped the wondering. Few new officers stopped to think of what the rifle really represented, of the fiercest struggle Sharp had ever fought, the climb from the ranks into the officer's mess. Now, that's a nicer intro, isn't it? That kind of draws you in and makes you think, oh, that's now this is a guy I could get behind. The character. <laughs> um, what, do you, what, what do you make of that? Was, was, would, would, would officers like Sharp have been around? Is that a sort of common, common backstory you might have found back then? Yeah, more common than we perceive. Um, it's always perceived that the uh, British officer was purely from the aristocracy, had purchased their way in, and they were really disconnected with their men. Not really the case. They are sharing a lot of the hardships of the campaign, first off. Aristocracy, yes, but when you start to look at the common pattern, the firstborn sons are staying at home because they're going to inherit the title a lot of the time. Um, so it's going into the second and third sons anyway, who've got to go and make a name for themselves, like the Duke of Wellington himself. He was not the eldest son. 
And coming from the ranks was not completely unusual. Um, it was not the majority. I believe, roughly speaking, in the rifles, it was about one in 10 men. And the rest of the army, it was about one in 20. So within a regiment, you are going to see some of these men. They might be looked down upon by certain officers of like the, the old school. But there is now, not just for the artillery and engineers who've been to military colleges like Woolwich, there is now um, Wickham, which is like a military academy closer to Sandhurst today. And so officers are training up as well as just purchasing in. So there's a bit of a mix. And something that came across in, my, uh, in some of my research for this was um, a, a, what seems like a rare term, but it was about like 5% of men enlisted as a gentleman volunteer. So a gentleman volunteer joined the army, hoping to become an officer, but couldn't afford it just then. They carried either a Baker rifle or a brown vest, they wore the uniform of a private soldier, and they were waiting for a commission to come available, generally when an officer was either killed, wounded, or promoted. And then they were gonna purchase it at hopefully a, a good deal, almost like a mate's rates. They were gonna get the best deal from their colonel who'd allow the, um, the passing on officer to not have to sell it at such a high price. So they would actually mess with the, um, with the officers in the evening, but work with the men during the day. So it, Bernard Cornwell portrays it's completely alien, but there would have been these men marching in the ranks and they would have had, let's say, one or two men in the regiment who've come from the ranks, either from daring deeds, storming breaches, or simply from purchasing it up themselves eventually, though commissions were really quite expensive into you know five figures today in uh, UK pounds. Um, it would have happened eventually in some places. So they weren't the majority, but they would have been around, certainly. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Cornwall's just used it for a bit of creative license to make his struggle even, even tougher than it would have been in reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it really adds to it if you have somebody who's kind of had a really easy 18 years going to Eton and having everything kind of handed to them and they've gone to yeah, Eton, Harrow, one of these nice schools and they've purchased a commission and they're commanding a bunch of men. The struggle is we're not on their side from a creative point of view. Um, and, and you said about the Baker rifle. Well, some of the um, rifles officers did carry Bakers. Uh, but again, it is a bit of a mix. It wouldn't have been completely unusual. In a line regiment, no, pretty much unheard of. Uh, the only difference in a line regiment is in the skirmishing companies. The sergeants carried a musket rather than the spontoon, they're like halberd. Um, but in the rifles, it did happen. There were certainly some accounts of it. But also the, the other side of it is some of the officers who are commanding companies, commanding the regiment within the rifles are still mounted on horses. So you read some accounts from Waterloo, first-hand accounts, and the commanding officer is riding up and down on his horse. And actually his horse is hit and has its like, ear shot off and things like that. And he doesn't realize because he's so engrossed in the battle. So there is a, a bit of a divide there. Okay, so, so back to the book, and we want to move forward eventually because we're trying to also cover the Battle of Talavera today, kind of kill two birds with one stone. But I do want to introduce an amazing character, one of my favorite characters in this book, and someone who does reoccur in Sharp's Regiment later on, another classic read, uh, which is Lieutenant Colonel Simerson, um, the man who's formed this regiment, the South Essex. I think it's his old militia regiment. He's now brought it to Spain. And this is the first time we meet him. It's, it's a great conversation that really sets the tone between Simerson and Sharp as these sort of rivals. Here we go. Back to the book. Lieutenant Sharp, sir. No, you're not. You're a damn disgrace. 
Simerson buckled his belt and turned back to Sharp. Done much soldiering then, Sharp, apart from fetching and carrying? A little, sir. Simerson chuckled. How old are you? Thirty-two, sir. Sharp stared rigidly ahead. Thirty-two, eh? And still only a lieutenant? What's the matter, Sharp? Incompetence? Sharp saw Forrest signalling to the colonel, but he ignored the movements. I joined in the ranks, sir. Forrest dropped his hand. The colonel dropped his mouth. There were not many men who made the jump from sergeant to ensign, and those who did could rarely be accused of incompetence. Simerson snorted. Ha! Huh, you're not a gentleman then, Sharp. No, sir. Well, you could try and dress like one, eh? Just because you grew up in a pigsty, that doesn't mean you have to dress like a pig. No, sir. There was nothing else for Sharp to say. <laughs> Simerson's a brilliant character, isn't he? Do you, do you think he was typical of commanding officers of the day or a bit harsh there? I, I'm going to say, luckily, probably not. Uh, he's, he's a fantastic character and brilliantly played by uh, Michael Cochrane in the uh, TV series. Yeah, that's what I see in my head every just like, time. <laughs> just fantastic. Uh, when he pops off in other TV programmes, often playing a vicar, it really throws me. Uh, he's so good at Simerson. Um, I would say probably not as harsh as that. I can't say that all British officers were salt of the earth at all. Um, the raising of um, regiments definitely happened. General Graham, Lord Lindock, uh, he raises a uh, battalion that's actually um, so successful, the Perthshire Volunteers, he has to raise a second one and it almost uh, bankrupts him. Oh, this is the uh, 90th, yeah. right? The Sorry? 90th. Yes, the 90th Regiment of Foot. Uh, and that's a personal war. He, he believed in the French Revolution and um, during a, like a passport investigation, they actually um, desecrate his, uh, his wife's coffin and uh, he starts to hate the French. So that bit is also quite interesting um, that he raises the regiment. Um, that's quite true. But there are some darker, gruffer commanders and two that really um, spring to mind is General Picton and Black Bob Crawford, commander of the Light Division. Uh, Blackwell Crawford was known for actually flogging his men. Um, he was known for things like if he spotted men trying to walk around a puddle, march, marching them all then through a river to kind of teach them a lesson. But his men kind of almost respected him, that they knew he, the Black Bob was his dark mood. And they kind of almost respected him, but out of fear. Picton again, uh, even uh, Wellington said he was a gruff old like man. And he had a terrible reputation. He'd already been um, court-martialed for um, torturing a slave. And his reputation was completely down the pan. And it's really interesting when you see the debates today, because it's not new information. He lived with this during his time. But as Wellington said, they needed men like him. Basically, warfare was not nice, and you had to keep these men in order. The last thing they wanted was looting, pillaging, uh, and worse, which was infamous that the French army were doing this in Spain and Portugal. So the discipline and the whip were a tool that was sometimes used because they hadn't learned better. I won't say they were needed to use the whip, but they hadn't learned the better way of um, bringing the troops together. Um, and it was also kind of a, a system of the, the class system, the purchasing system. The officers didn't often earn their commission, um, minority at the time. They were buying a commission which was carried on because they kind of thought it's solidifying the British class system and that the officers are always going to want to fight for Britain because they have literally an economic interest in their career. They're going to be spending more money than they're earning until they reach ranks of like colonel. And even then, 
there's always a means through the system. So they've, they've got this vested interest in their own career. So it's a really strange time, and it did breed some very odd characters. Picton and Crawford, you wouldn't say they were nice men at all. Yeah, so, so I guess Simerson sort of has the worst of their traits mixed with incompetence. <laughs> mixed with incompetence. Luckily, very luckily, there weren't many incompetent officers under Wellington. He, he didn't choose them. He, he got to write to the horse guards, British Army headquarters, and say which brigade commanders he wanted. Regimental commanders had less choice over people like um, Simerson as lieutenant colonel. They purchased or earned their way up. Um, but they can be, you know, moved around on paper. Um, it's a link to Sharp's Regiment. You can hide people in the system and uh, use them less. And that's something Wellington was very good at. He would, he would only use the men who were, had talent because he didn't like, he didn't like to uh, delegate much responsibility. So if he gave that away, um, he's going to only give that to the most competent. So I don't know if you want to take two minutes to kind of, we're just going to brush over it because it's not as important to the Battle of Talavera. But just to give us the background on, on what happens in the book here with the, the, the disastrous engagement at the bridge at Val de la Casa. Can you kind of sum that up in a, in a, in a few lines for the listeners who haven't read the book? Yeah, Val de la Casa was um, a fictional raid. Uh, Bernard Cornwell kind of writes uh, Sharp's unit as a bit of a, a forerunner to the SAS or the long range desert groups and sends them off on these long missions, which happened a lot less in the peninsula, but uh, it's damn good fun anyway. And uh, they go off with the South Essex to kind of mentor them uh, under the spy master of uh, Major Hogan. I think it's Captain Hogan then. The brilliant Brian Cox in the TV series. And uh, with Simerson's uh, experience all being home service, um, when they are attacked and they're trying to blow up a bridge, half the force are over the bridge with sharp le de laying demolitions. And he kind of reinforces this attack. And as in the middle of sharp fighting, um, they are cut off because Simerson orders the bridge to be blown up in the middle of the battle leaving no route of uh, escape. And in the, in the books, I believe he throws the colours into the river, whereas in, in the TV series, they are captured by a French patrol and carried away. No, they, fighting uh, to do so. have, having just read the book, they're, they're, they're also captured in the, in the book there as they're well. Or one, one of them is captured and then Sharps re recaptures the other one himself. That's it. And, uh, and uh, in the fighting uh, of that, there's a famous bit where one of the more experienced officers, but he's a quiet, gentle soul within the South Essex Regiment, the, the fictional regiment that Simerson comes from, is mortally wounded and lay there dying. This is Major Lennox, I, I seem to recall. Major Lennox, Scottish officer. And he comes with great experience. He's been with Wellington in campaign. Not quite sure why, but it's the dying officer's wish that he is given an imperial eagle onto his grave. And Sharp doesn't promise this, but everyone hears Major Lennox ask it. And it really sets the scene for Sharp's eagle and what's going to come. Yeah. Brilliant. No, it's a, it's a, it's a classic. It's a classic uh, bit of bit of fictional writing. I, and, and you're right. It's never it's never really quite clear why Lennox, you know, suddenly obsesses about this eagle as he's dying. But hey, what, what the hell? He makes for a great story. So let, he's got we've got the eagle. Written in. Excellent. <laughs>
So I'm going to skip forward to your one of your favourite bits of the of the book and the TV show, which is after the debacle at the bridge. Simerson, of course, tries to blame the entire incident on Sharp's legitimate refusal not to deploy his riflemen against the French cavalry. Um, you know, skirmishes attacking cavalry generally doesn't end well. Um, he makes this excuse to Sir Arthur Wellesley, and then the following scene ensues in the book. I don't know if you want to read it or if you'd like me to. I'll give it a go. Okay. <clears throat> Sharp stared rigidly ahead at the picture on the wall behind the general. He heard a rustle of paper. Wellesley had picked up the sheet from the desk. His voice was lower. You've lost, sir. As well as your colour, 242 men, either killed or injured. You lost a major, three captains, five lieutenants, four ensigns, and ten sergeants. Are my figures correct? Again, no one spoke. Wellesley stood up. Your orders, sir, were those of a fool. Next time, Sir Henry, I suggest you fly a white flag and save the French the trouble of unsheathing their swords. <laughs> Brilliant. The job you had to do, sir, I could have been done by a company. I was forced by diplomacy to commit a battalion, and I sent yours, sir so that your men would have a sight and taste of the French. I was wrong. As a result of one of your colours, is now on its way to Paris to be paraded in front of the mob. Tell me if I malign you. Simerson had blanched white. Sharp had never seen Wellesley so angry. He had seemed to have forgotten the presence of the others and had directed his words at Simerson with a vengeful force. You no longer have a battalion, Sir Henry. It ceased to exist when you threw away your men and a colour. The South Essex is a single battalion, is that right? Simerson nodded and muttered assent. You can hardly make up their numbers from home. I wish, Sir Henry, I could send you home, but I cannot. My hands are tied, sir, by Parliament and by the horse guards and by meddling politicians like your cousin. I'm declaring your battalion, sir, Henry, to be a battalion of detachments. I will attach new officers myself and draft men into your ranks. You will serve in General Hill's division. But, sir, sir, Simerson was overwhelmed by the information. To be called a battalion of detachments, it was unthinkable. He stammered a protest. So the South Essex was wiped from the order of battle in disgrace. And Sharp finds himself temporarily promoted in captain to be the, to be the commander of the light company who think... begins to knock into shape. <laughs> so, yeah, so you, you, you're right there, that last bit. So Sharp's sort of... Uh, picked up and put into this command of the light company and uh, much against Simerson's wishes there. Um, but I think it is, a, a, what, one, what a brilliant scene. I mean, that's probably my favourite scene of the whole, the whole book, actually. It's one of my favourite scenes. There's, there's, they summarise the bit about the cousins in the TV series um, with, not, uh, with, uh, with Wellington, who goes on the defensive, and it's just when he says, oh, Major Enix should answer for his mistakes. And it's this Wellesley rage, which I well believed is the truth. And it's Major Lennox answer with his life, sir. Major Lennox answer with his life, as you should have done if you had any sense of honour. And this spouting of just his quick repartee that Wellington is known to be incredibly sharp mentally, but also have a really um, like quick anger as well when, it, when, his, uh, when his subordinates... Uh, didn't have the information to hand or were arguing back. And so I can well believe that's within in character within the fictional world. So I, I absolutely love that scene. <laughs> it is a classic. And for anyone watching, if you've read the book but haven't seen the TV episode, it's well worth a watch for exactly what Marcus is saying there. That sort of back and forth from Wellesley to Simerson is, is brilliant, with everyone else just stood nervously on the side. I'd strongly recommend the book and the TV episode, not one and the other, both. <laughs>
So in, interestingly, and I'm sure you knew this, Marcus, there actually was two battalions of detachments in the coming campaign, in the Talavera campaign. And one of them was in General Hill's division. And, and some of their exploits have kind of been written into the South Essex here, or the battalion of detachments, as they're now known. So I thought that was quite interesting where fact and fiction kind of merged there, which I thought was quite good. Um, and in, in, in real life, of course, the battalion of detachments, which are soldiers who's, who'd been left behind during the, re, uh, the march to Karuna, wasn't it? And had been left stationed in Portugal or maybe their battalions had gone ahead and they were in hospital, that sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. In the in the first battalion detachments I was reading, they were mostly light troops. There was a lot there from the, um, the 60th and the 95th, so the two rifle uh, regiments. And they tried to have them in a rough companies where they were commanded by officers from their own regiment. So there were some similarities. And it, there were so many of them. They formed a second battalion, which then became quite a mixed match. And like it was often termed as a Mongol regiment. They were so merged in. But they're never really written about because they don't have a regimental number. So there's not much history and tradition. But they pop up all over the place out of necessity of men just simply getting lost, left behind, especially with uh, the retreat to Corona. And so they do actually have this part where there's men from a regiment that should be back home in Britain, um, like the 95th, actually, um, are there in the campaigns. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. So I know the Germans used to do it a lot in World War Two. They'd just round up whoever they could find and throw them into sort of scratch battalions. I guess it's a similar, similar sort of thing. Yeah, and they did something else in the Peninsula and Napoleonic era a lot with the British, is they formed uh, flank um, battalions, flank company battalions. So... Each regiment's got 10 companies and you've got the two flanks, which would be the grenadiers who are thought of being the, the tallest, the strongest and kind of an elite. And the light company who are thought of as being some of the smartest and best trained. Not necessarily, but that's roughly how it works. And you've got eight line companies in between. And when they were short of men or needing to do different uh, things, they would, if they had a large force, they would just form the grenadiers as one regiment and the light companies another. But there are certainly cases where they've taken Heart, like four or five light companies and four or five grenadier companies and form them as a as a single regiment and normally under the command of a major they don't give it to a full lieutenant colonel and uh, these regiments uh, pop up all over the place as well i was reading about uh, the battle um around cadiz and there's the battalion of flank companies from uh, gibraltar so yeah they they do suddenly appear and so there's regimental history and individual history obviously county and families that intertwine through battles where they almost like shouldn't be air versus commas. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating stuff. And one thing now that in the in the book and also in the TV show they make a big thing of is Sharp training his men for the upcoming Battle of Talavera by teaching them how to fire three rounds a minute because that's what good good soldiers do. They fire three rounds a minute. Um, now he had to sort of, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on the weaponry. You all know better than me, but sort of bite, spit, tap the weapon. You know, um, was that realistic? And what makes a good soldier sharp? The ability to fire three rounds a minute in any weather, sir. Three a minute? Short answer, no. Um, <laughs> short answer, you're, you're not going to be spitting a ball down a barrel. If you do anything after the first shot, it's going to be red hot. Um, it's, it's thumb down, it's placed down. Um, but, it's always comes with a but, not to say it didn't happen. And also, um, with the, the Baker rifle, the infantry pattern rifle, as it was known then, versus the Brown Bess, which is unrifled, so it's smooth bore like a drain pipe on the inside. Um, 
the, the Baker rifle bullet was, came in a patched and unpatched. So the patch was like a leather um, wrapping that was greased or oiled. And it had to be forced down really slowly. And this was the whole thing of like accuracy versus rate of fire. Riflemen really could only manage two rounds a minute. It, it was forcing it down. When they first brought out the infantry rifle, it actually came with a small mallet for the soldiers to force it down. But that was impractical. They threw that away. So they were like breaking their hands open, forcing this down. Whereas the brown vest, you could just get it down there, bit of paper after it, ram it once. Right, let's do um, the uh, loading. But it wasn't completely uncommon to think that actually they were sometimes issued, they would have a little pouch on their hip with it ready to load, but they'd have a patch separately to the ball and they meant to load it in. Because to save time, they would discard the patch and just load that in. You're talking very close range. We just need to get one in. We're going to save ourselves 10, 20 seconds by just kind of quickly. And it's going to now be really inaccurate. It's going to be like a, a musket. But at close range, fighting in streets, buildings, someone's coming at you. It's better to have something than nothing. So that kind of spitting down the thing, I think, kind of comes from unpatching a ball in rifles and getting it out really quickly of soldiers' necessity and desperation. Um, but no, there's there's a, quite a, a lot of debate, especially within reenactment, where putting your face over a half-loaded weapon and spitting a musket ball down there, as you can imagine, is really quite an unsafe Bloody thing health to and, do. Health and safety gone mad. Health and safety. <laughs> uh, nightmare. Can you imagine Sharp with a pair of safety goggles and a high-vis jacket? Just wouldn't go. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Well, so let's carry on then. So battle is approaching. We're approaching the, the huge battle of Talavera. And as anyone who heard the last few episodes will know, Wellesley had retaken Oporto and kicked Marshal Soult from northern Portugal. He'd now turned his army east and marched into Spain to join forces with a Spanish army under General Cuesta, ready to attack Marshal Victor's corps of just over 20,000 men. Now, early on the morning of the 23rd of July, Wellesley was ready to attack. He had the agreement of Cuesta that they were going to really smash into Victor's army, uh, which at that point had no other supporting units around it. You know, they hadn't met up with Sebastiani's corps and King Joseph. So anyway, with the French greatly outnumbered, the British and Spanish mustering around 50,000 men, brilliant victory is assured. I'll now let Bernard Cornwall and, and Sharp describe what happens next. Sharp made his way towards Forrest to find out what he had missed when he saw a familiar figure riding hard down the track. He walked into the road and held up a hand. It was Lieutenant Colonel Lawford and he was furious. He saw Sharp, reined in and swore, Bloody hell, Richard! Bloody, bloody hell! Bloody Spanish! What's happened? Lawford could barely contain his anger. The bloody Spanish refused to wake up, can you believe it? Other, of other officers drew around. Lawford took off his hat and wiped his forehead. He had deep circles under his eyes. We get up at two o'clock in the bloody morning to save their bloody country and they can't be bothered to get out of bed. Lawford looked around as though hoping to see a Spaniard on whom to vent his seething fury. We rode over there at six. Quester's in his bloody coach lying on bloody cushions and says his army is too tired to fight. Can you believe it? We had them like that. He pinched a finger and thumb together. We would have murdered them this morning. So, Marcus, <laughs> is, that, is that exactly what happened from what you're aware? It's pretty close, actually. Um, the relationship between the soon-to-be Wellington, uh, Wellesley, and the Spanish uh, was really difficult. Uh, it would be much better with the Portuguese. Uh, that was a really good relationship. He had approval from the um, Supreme Junta. 
uh, in El Porto and to command the Spanish troops, and they'd been integrated into the um, British army very successfully. Spain, not so much so. They uh, were very, they were very high and mighty about the command of their army, and they had actually had fought some brief victories uh, against the French. And um, they they really also had their own personal dislike of the, the French because they'd been stabbed in the back by Napoleon, which many people forget that he he was meant to be the ally of uh, the King of Spain. He fought, you know, at Trafalgar, uh, the Spanish and the French, and then literally kidnapped the, the King of Spain and held his family to ransom and started murdering in the streets of Madrid. So there's a lot of hatred and sudden distrust. But not very long ago, they were fighting the British at Trafalgar. So they didn't quite trust the British yet either. So uh, what had actually kind of happened is they'd agreed that the, much like in Portugal and the Portuguese did it really successfully, that the Spanish were going to supply um, wagons, logistics, guides, and also supplies of food. And it just doesn't materialise. So from the offset, Wellesley has got a really difficult relationship in butting heads with the Spanish commanders. And uh, going, where are my supplies? You know, we've got the troops here, but we can't move. We haven't got anything. And then, yes, at Talavera, the two forces meet um, in July. Uh, three days later, they get this perfect opportunity to attack Marshal Victor, who's not yet met up with uh, Joseph Bonaparte and the other French forces. And Zuasta just refuses point blank to move. It's not the day for him. He doesn't want to. Um, I don't want to like steer into any um, stereotypes. So they, they basically do refuse to move and they don't want to kind of go under the British command. Um, and then the next day, Suesta sees the French and wants to go. Wellesley realised that the trap's too late, doesn't want to go. The, the French reinforcements are too near. He implores Suesta not to do it because he says, we're not going to go. It's basically a trap. Suesta moves off. And the day following that, he's badly mauled in a battle and has to retreat back to Wellesley's British forces, admitting that that was a mistake. Well, I'm not sure he actually does admit it. He just kind of badly gets loads of his troops killed, even though he was told it was going to happen. And, and, I, and I believe he then turned around um, on the east of the Alberche or Alberche River to, to want to fight the advancing French who now outnumbered him. And Wellesley had to go over and literally bend his knee and beg uh, Quester or Suester, as I'm not sure which is the correct pronunciation, to go back across the Alberche River uh, to this position that Wellesley had decided would be much better to fight the battle outside the town of Talavera in a sort of line running uh, from the Tagus yeah. River up to the Cerro de Medellin, the big hill that overlooked the plain below. And that's kind of where the battle was then, was then fought. Yeah. And I mean, by this point, though, the numbers were quite similar, weren't they? It was very much a sort of 50-50 battle. Now the numbers similar. They've lost their advantage. They've lost kind of a, any sort of element of surprise. Um, what they do have is they've got this really strong position, um, something that you've always got to give uh, Wellington credit for, even people who dislike Wellington, um, is he's got a good eye for ground. He knows where he can hide troops, where he can manoeuvre troops, where he'll have an advantage, even if it's only slight. And that slight advantage being the real difference in battles. And it very rarely lets him down. I'm thinking of Fuentes de Unero being one of the few cases it really lets him down. But picking the rises in this um, difficult terrain across the Iberian Peninsula, he really comes into his own. He's learnt it. For nine years in India, he's learned logistics and he's learned reading uh, terrain brilliantly. And he does it with really good effect here at Talavera of picking a really strong position. 
Yeah, so um, so then Sharp, the battle is coming. Sharp's made this uh, pledge, this promise to the dying Major Lennox to, to capture an eagle. Um, now, there's a, a, a few lines in the book on this, so I'll, I'll, I'll just quote from the book, and then I might ask you to give us a bit more background on, on eagles, on the French eagle, because a lot of people who, who don't follow the Napoleonic Wars as closely as us may not know what, what that is. So, back to the book. In the last six years, the French had appeared on the battlefield with new standards. In place of the old colours, they now carried gilded eagles mounted on poles. It was said that each eagle was personally presented to the regiment by the emperor himself, and the standards were therefore more than just a symbol of the regiment. They were a symbol of all France's pride in their new order. To take an eagle was to make Bonaparte wince in person. Sharp felt the anger rise in him. I don't mind replacing Simerson's flag with an eagle, but I'm bloody angry that I have to carve my way through a company of French grenadiers just to stay in the army. Just to backtrack a bit, this is because Simerson had, had, had sent a report to London blaming everything on Sharp, and he thought he was going to either get kicked out of the army or sent to a, a regiment in the West Indies, uh, an, an inevitable death from yellow fever. Anyway, Lawford said nothing. He knew that Sharp spoke the truth. The only thing that could stop the officials in Whitehall singling out Sharp for punishment was if the rifleman performed a deed of such undoubted merit that they would look foolish to make him a scapegoat. Privately, Lawford thought Sharp had done more than enough. He had regained a colour, captured a gun, but the account of his deeds would be muddied in, the, in London by Simerson's telling. No, he had to do more, go further, risking his life in an attempt to keep his job. Whew. So, I, I mean, I think that sums it up, but is, is, does that capture the importance of eagles? Like, what did that mean to the French? I mean, it meant everything to the French, and capturing meant one meant everything to the British, and, and vice versa. British, British colours being captured was a huge honour to the French. Uh, the eagle themselves, they say, they, in theory, um, they were touched by Napoleon's own hand. Um, they were, each regiment has colours, flags. Um, and in the French army at the time, the first battalion, of which you have multiple battalions, carry the eagles, and the others carry a normal standard. So they were meant to represent the elite of their regiments being carried at the front, touched by their emperor. And so it's carrying all of these men's hopes, ambitions, glory of past honor, and representing everything of Napoleon and the French empire. So all encapsulated within one flag. Uh, and it would be silk with a, a golden eagle at the top. Um, and on it would have their battle on. It's much like a British colours. The British carried two, a, a regimental colour and a king's colour. And we had two carried by an ensign. And they were always held in the middle of a regiment. Um, so to get towards one, you've got to, in theory, get to the thickest fighting. And uh, they're always going to be guarded really, really religiously. Um, there are so many uh, depictions within the British army of people giving literally life and limb, people who have actually lost arms fighting for these. And in later wars, like the Anglo-Afghan conflict, people wrapping the flag around themselves and being shot and killed with it so that they're buried with it rather than losing it uh, to Afghan tribesmen. Like Flashman. And also it does have... Sorry? Like Flashman in, uh, in the first oh, Flashman yeah, book. He, he witnesses uh, this famous scene of uh, a retreat. Yeah. And... Um, much like Sharp, he's written into fantastic uh, novels. <laughs> That's one for and another series. We can discuss uh, Flashman in another series, I think. He's a rogue and a cat. <laughs> I love Flashman too. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and it also has got this sense of glory. So capturing one uh, did actually uh, often lead to promotion. Uh, I'm famously thinking of Sergeant Ewart at uh, Waterloo, 
Uh, he captures an eagle, uh, probably captures the eagle. There's still a bit of controversy raging. And he's promoted to an ensign, so a second lieutenant in the, in the cavalry. And it's, he's very famous because there's a pub named after him in the Royal Mile of Edinburgh that lots of people visit. Uh, so his name lives on in a pub, which is quite right too. And, uh, it, and it's, it's one of the few ways you can get automatic promotion up from the ranks. Capturing an eagle and therefore an enemy colours. Um, the guns, which are, are colours not so much, but they'll give you um, a certain prize money. Or a storming into the breach. Places like Badhoff and Soledad Rodrigo, if you're in the forlorn hope, which are almost guaranteed to die, I believe the, the officer leading it would get an automatic promotion from lieutenant to captain, and the sergeant would get a commission into a second lieutenant or ensign. So it's acts of bravery which are near suicidal would give this sudden promotions. And also glory, they were always presented back to either the king or the prince regent. After Waterloo, they are laying, the two eagles from Waterloo, are laying at the prince regent's feet, interrupting a huge ball he's having. And he's given them uh, by Major Percy and uh, the whole story of Waterloo unfolds. So they're, they're being brought back and displayed around London and in all sorts of important places. Uh, so they are a huge symbol of fighting the enemy, British resistance of a small army, this big imperial, the French Empire this, by this time is, is huge. It's going from Portugal to the east of um, Europe, you know, Poland, um, and everything much in between in one way or another is being subjugated by uh, the Bonapartist family. So um, kind of it's, it's a symbol of British resistance, what we'd have in World War I, World War II as a bulldog. We, they have then as Britannia or uh, John Buller, a little farmer figure, against a massive empire and capturing one of their sacred eagles. Napoleon's built a, a cult around himself similar to um, Caesar, this Roman symbology of eagles. And they even have lightning bolts in their claws or wreaths around their necks like a laurel wreath uh, in certain cases. So, yeah, an eagle is a big deal. Yeah, brilliant. Well, let's not give away whether Sharp is successful. I think we all know he is. Oh, whoops, did I let that go? But... <laughs> But uh, so I want to move forward to the night of the 27th of July, because this is covered in Sharp's Eagle and it's actually a very important part of the battle or or, or actually isn't really, but is a, a, a good bit of drama. So for the listeners who aren't aware, the 27th, there's a day of skirmishing and fighting as the Spanish withdraw and two two of the British divisions, including uh, I think it's Sherbrooke's. I may be wrong there. I'll have to check my notes. But anyway, they, they go and support the Spanish to help them withdraw. And as the British come back to their to their assigned positions uh, on on the battlefield, uh, there's a miscommunication, and the peak of the hill, which uh, the peak of Medellin, which is this this uh, uh, large feature that dominates the battlefield, is meant to be manned by Hill's division, except in the darkness and in the confusion, with everybody tired, everybody kind of settles down for the night in the wrong place. And no, no pickets are put out in the right place because everybody thinks they're the second line and everyone is under the illusion that there's another line of troops in front of them. So Marshal Victor sees his opportunity that evening. He can see that the, the hill isn't as well defended as he might have hoped. And he, and he, and he sends three regiments, uh, including the 9th Légère, uh, who play a big part in this battle, actually, um, to, to take the hill. So, so let's have a look because Sharp finds himself in the, in the middle of that. So back to the book and the, and the night attack, which luckily our man, uh, Captain Sharp at this point, manages to, to, to spot the attack when no one else does. So here we go. Sharp turned around and stared at the far horizon and the red glow of the French fires that lined the edge of the hill with a faint light. 
There were rabbits moving on the crest of the hill he had climbed. He could see their small shapes bobbing, and suddenly he froze. Had there been sentries there he had missed? They were not rabbits. He could see the silhouettes of men. He had mistaken their heads for rabbits, but as they climbed over the crest he could see a dozen men carrying guns heading towards him. He lay flat on the grass, gripping the sword and stared at the dim glow of the skyline. He put his ear to the ground and heard what he feared to hear, the faint thump of marching feet. And he raised his head and kept looking as the dozen men turned into a misshapen mass. He remembered telling Hogan that the French would not attack at night. Yet he was seeing just that, a night attack on the Medellin. The dozen men would be some of the skirmishers, the French vol voltiers or tirilleurs. I'm not sure. Uh, Always get those two words mixed up. And the solid mass was a French column climbing the hill in silence. But how to be sure? It could, be, it could as easily be a British battalion moving in the dark, finding a new place to camp. But this late at night, he wriggled forward on knees and elbows, keeping his body close to the earth, so that whoever was coming in the dark would not see him silhouetted in the fires. The sword rustled on the grass. He seemed to be making a deafening sound. But the men walked on towards him. Uh, so I think we'll jump forward there. Basically, luckily, our man Sharp is able to, to thwart that attack and, and uh, force the French to fire a volley towards him. But is that, is that what happened? I mean, do you, is that pretty close to the truth there? Yeah, the night attack's a really strange one. Um, Victor's like, force goes, uh, well, a small force goes forwards without seeming to have much uh, permission and support. Um, it leaves a huge amount of confusion because... It seems that the, the British brigade commander has got confused and thinks he's in the second line, not the front line. And even though I believe standing orders would have always had to, had to put out sentries, they're so exhausted from the day's marching and the heat. I remember this is in late July in Spain on a dusty plane and marching up a hill. And it's a huge oversight for the, uh, the officers, actually, who are in, uh, responsible for that. Um, but they, junior officers, actually. Um, they, they basically drop themselves down and they kind of sleep where they, they fall down on their, on their packs. Um, and it's, a, it's really quite a close one thing. And uh, General Hill, Daddy Hill to his men, a uh, man I've got quite a lot of respect for, he rides forwards and kind of personally manages um, the battle. In fact, he rides so far forwards, the, uh, the French trialeurs, who are the skirmishers, actually grab him and try to pull him off uh, his horse. And uh, he's able to literally um, beat them off, fight them off, and then turn tail and run. But the man riding next to him, the brigade major, is shot and killed during that. So he's really close to losing um, General Hill, who's often uh, Wellington's second in command. So it would have changed uh, quite a lot of history. Um, you know, it would have changed the course of several battles to lose Hill. Uh, but it was a huge oversight uh, to not have that. And it's a big mistake, but it's just about... Uh, abled and obviously Bernard Cornwell writes in that Sharp um, starts uh, a volley early. I'm not so sure that they did actually give away the position. They they cause a huge amount of confusion within the British. So I think they they really do get in amongst yeah. uh, British I, regiments. I think the Seventh Flying Battalion of the King's German Legion was almost wiped out. I mean, I think about half their number were either killed or captured. Yeah, I think there was about 400 killed and wounded both sides. So that's like a good size of a regiment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I don't I don't think it's possible to do justice these days to how confusing uh, a night engagement must have been in those days. You know, uh... must be bad when you're when you're relying upon mass formations, volley fire and working as a, a body of men rather than individuals, unless you're skirmishers. You're not given that independent thoughts. So you're going to be stood there waiting for orders, waiting for everyone to form up next to you. But 
all I can say is if uh, a group, get a group together of about eight friends and go for a walk across a field and into a woods and into another field, try to take a right and a left, and you'll just see everyone will get lost so quickly in the dead of night without a moon out. And then suddenly add a couple of thousand people coming at you, trying to you, the confusion would be huge. Yeah. Absolutely massive. Yeah, exactly. But luckily, somehow, I think Sir Arthur Wellesley rides across and General, General Hill is on the scene and they're able to reorganize a, a, or to organize a counterattack. And I think the 29th... Yeah, Hill does, really, does really well with that. Um, somebody to really give credit to. He's, he's another man, his men, he's the reverse of uh, your Pictons and your Crawfords and your Simmersons. He's known as Daddy Hill because he's uh, so beloved by his men. They really like him, his yeah. division's troops. And I, I was reading just yesterday how, uh, how he very rarely swore. Only, uh, it was only heard to swear on two occasions, and one of them was uh, on the 28th of July, which uh, maybe we can talk about in a bit. But, uh, yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> so, so anyway. seems like a really nice start reading about him. <laughs> well, even the pictures of him, like he just looks like your sweet old uncle. Yes, yeah, he really does. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the French, the French did take the, the summit of Medellin for a few minutes, um, but eventually were pushed off with a, with a counterattack led by the 29th Regiment of Foot, who, who actually did sterling work in pushing the 9th Légère back off the hill and sending them reeling, reeling down it. Um, the 1st Battalion of Detachments were there, Although the, uh, Charles Leslie of the 29th remembers them sort of being all confused and not knowing what to do and saying to the officers of the 29th, we're willing to fight, we just need somebody to lead us, which I think is quite telling, actually, about the state of yeah. morale in that unit at that point. So after the night attack, the battalion of detachments and the 29th and I think the buffs, they, they sort of manned their positions on the hill, but there was no rest for them. At five in the morning, a single artillery piece opened fire. It was the signal for the battle to begin. The French had decided to try and again retake the Medellin. Huge columns were arrayed, mainly against the British left flank around the Medellin, and they began to move forward. Do you want to describe the scene from, uh, from the book there? Yeah, Bernard Cornwell takes it up. Ensign Den Denny came and knelt beside Shayar. His face betrayed the worry and fear that the drumming, chanting, mass endangered. Sharp looked to him. What do you think? Sir? Frightening? Denny nodded. Sharp laughed. Did you ever learn mathematics? Yes, sir. So add up, how many Frenchmen can actually use their muskets? Then he stared at the column and Sharp saw a realisation draw in his face. The French column was a tried and tested battle winner, but against good troops it was a death trap. Only the front rank and the two flank files could actually use their guns, and the hundreds of men in the nearest column only the 60 in the front rank and the men on the ends of the 30 or so other ranks could actually fire their enemies. The massive men in the middle were there merely to add weight, to look impressive, cheer, and fill up the gaps left by the dead. Now, I know you can fire three rounds a minute, but what I want to know now is can you stand? So, so picking up, Marcus, um, I, I, I think that's spot on, isn't it? Uh, that, that's pretty much uh, the, the mathematics behind why line beat column every time. Is that fair to say? It is, but it's really strange when it comes to the column does work. You, we keep, like, you see it time and time again, uh, the British being uh, beating, sorry, the British beating the column. But you've got to remember that by this point, uh, by 1809, the, the, France, the French army, the France had conquered nearly all of Europe by using the column. 
And it, so it seems like it's nonsensical, but it does have logic, uh, largely because uh, Napoleon's army is made up of conscripts and it's got the resource of manpower. And so what they're trying to do is force men forwards in an organized mass attack. And uh, they use spirits. They call it the French Ilan, the cheering, the chanting to drive their attack home. And it's I mean, they're really good at it. Um, they do beat, you know, Austrian, Russian, Spanish armies by using these um, tactics. Um, where it slightly starts to fall short is it's meant to, as the column approaches the line, the men in the line see a huge mass, like an unstoppable mass of uh, men coming towards them. It's slightly misleading with the column because it actually is slightly wider than it is deep, but it's going to be supported by another regiment and another regiment and another regiment. So it's actually a series of um, wide, dense units. And the units facing them are meant to worry, panic, hesitate and fall back. But it's something the British don't do. Uh, the, the French said of British, they don't know when they're beaten and they carry on fighting, they carry on firing. And that's when the mathematics come in, but also training. And the British Army at the time is one of the few in Europe who's going to be training with live ammunition. So that biting of the cartridge, they still bite the end of it to pour the powder down and get doing going through the motions. They are really well drilled in. And they're also, you know, it's almost like a pig headed stubbornness of the British of not wanting to fall back. And it's something they go to go into a whole study of regimental honour, comradeship. They build up really strongly on a subunit level that you are looking after the men next to you. And then you build that into a whole regimental pride, regimental history. And they don't want to fall back. They don't want to let their mates down. They don't want to let the regiment down. They don't want to be seen as to be the one who steps back. And that simple kind of spirit of these British um, soldiers, never mind our uh, Portuguese and, um, and German allies within the army, actually, it's quite a, quite a wide nation. Uh, but they, uh, they, they don't step back and they don't and they carry on pouring in these volleys. And they also do something they practice called platoon fire, which is like a ripple fire effect where it's just half a company will be firing down the line. So to your ear, it will sound almost like something like tap, but somewhere between tap dance and machine gun fire. And by the time it's reached one end, the guys at the other end have reloaded and it's constant and at really close range. The range of a musket is only like 80 yards, like 60 meters. If they can get that constant fire, there's not a pause, then they can be really deadly. If there's a pause, they'll have one volley and then the French are going to carry on sweeping in. So it's a mixture of mutual regiment support, the British um, stubbornness and training all mixed in and mathematics take over. And it's a really deadly mathematics and it causes large French casualties. It does almost work a few times. The French at the Battle of like Bukasa. They get on top of a ridge where the British are defending and they keep coming in and they keep coming in. They're supported. They've got huge columns. And they, but the British have got to fold round and they do. They step back, allowing more regiments to come in and more maths is kind of added in, more weight of fire. And it does work that British lines are not broken by French columns. Brilliant. And, and, and on this occasion also, you know, the, the attack by the French right wing against the British left is, is once again repulsed. Um, and, and the poor 9th Leger, who took a battering uh, at the Battle of Talavera, once again uh, sent reeling back across, uh, across the Portina uh, brook that kind of separated the two armies along, along much of the battlefield there. Uh, and I mean, Bernard Cornwall touches on it. There's then a kind of sort of unofficial armistice between the armies, isn't there, at Talavera, while, while the, the French high command sort of go off and decide what to do because they're kind of not quite sure now. They've finally combined all their armies. Um, 
And funnily enough, I was just reading about it, which is why I'm fairly confident talking about it. At this point, um, Jordan and uh, King Joseph and Sebastiani are all for just holding the defensive. They say, you know what, let's just stay where we are. We're still waiting for Soult's army. Once he gets here, we can just smash these guys, but let's just hold where we are. So there's this big debate happening in the background. At which point, then they get a, a couple of runners arrive, one to tell them Soot's core is still miles away and won't be there uh, anytime soon for a few days. And another to say, General, I think Venegas, the Spanish commander, is now threatening Madrid and they're going to have to pull off probably 15,000 men to go and fight this guy. So, right, the decision is made. Let's go crush. We're going to have to just launch this massive attack to crush the British today and then rush back to Madrid to go fight Venegas and uh, his uh, army of... Uh, might be La Mancha, I can't quite remember. Perhaps, uh, I don't know, Span the Spanish army isn't my, my speciality, probably the not, same as you. Not my strong point, I'm afraid, either. They, they, they've all given uh, like localised names as opposed to numbers, so it makes it uh, slightly harder for my Anglo-Saxon tongue. Exactly, exactly. Um, so anyway, moving back to the book, and at around 2pm, another huge attack was launched against the British. Again, it was repulsed by heavy volley fire, but then the battle came close to unravelling when the British follow-up bayonet charge, as was often the case, went too far. Let's go back to, to the book and the words of Bernard Cornwall. The general officers watched as the first line of the French attack disintegrated and the line of Germans and guardsmen chased them backwards, pursuing the shattered columns at bayonet point across the stream, past the horse artillery which had simply been abandoned by the enemy without firing a shot. Oh, God. Sharp groaned in disbelief. What? Knowles looked towards the stream. Behind the backs of the Dutch battalion who were marooned in the middle of the field to where the victorious Germans were now in trouble. The first French columns had fled, broken and defeated. But at the stream was a second line of columns, as large as the first, and the shattered Frenchmen found shelter behind the waiting guns of their reserve. The German and British troops, their blood roused, bayonets wet but muskets unloaded, ran straight into the fire of the reserve French troops, and it was the turn of the British to be shattered by musket volleys. They turned and fled in total disorder, and behind them the second line of columns, reinforced with the survivors of the first, struck up the drumbeats and started to march into the plain. Now, this was the main crisis of the battle. And, and tell me, this was quite common, wasn't it? Some, some colonels did struggle to control their, their regiments once their blood was up. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's, it's literally that. Um, the bayonets go on. And even today, the bayonet is a psychological symbol of an attack. And they go and they see the enemy running and they see victory in a microscope and they've got their blinkers on and they think that's it, the entire French army's running and they charge after them. And unfortunately, they overexpose, they're leaving, the men who aren't fighting are just gonna be stood there waiting for orders, shocked and surprised that another regiment is running forwards and waiting. They're gonna be overexposed, they're flanked. And then also if they're running, really hard to run in a line, really difficult, oh, different terrain, different fitness, different, lengths of legs it all comes into play and they're going to be scattered over uh, a wide area they've lost that line they've lost that cohesion and it, as you said there you know the french have got their columns they've got numbers and it's densely packed so it doesn't really matter if they're um you've got one or two columns coming at them you've got it's a scattered formation and they've got the spirit now because they're seeing a unit that doesn't have the cohesion to defend itself and they can push in it happens quite frequently it's really hard to control the men I think they, they've got the mixture of wanting to win, but there is a other side to it that's not often written about. 
if you get an enemy's dead on the floor, you've got whatever's in his pack and you know that he's got his pay and we know the French, he's probably got some loot in there as well. And that loot is now fair game because you didn't steal it from a Spaniard, you stole it from a Frenchman. So uh, there's a chance to make yourself temporarily rich. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you're right, that, that isn't often as discussed as maybe it, it could or should be because, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess a lot of soldiers look forward to battles for exactly that. There was a chance to make money in uh, life. Life was short and, uh, and dangerous anyway. So do what you can to try to get by effectively. Exactly. So I want to jump forward a little now to Sharp's capture of a French eagle. As, you're, as, as, as we talked about, he'd made this promise and now he was hoping to restore the honour of the South Essex by, by capturing one. So after, after this sort of nearly disastrous counterattack by the guards, um, the line stabilised and the main French assault had been repulsed. But then in the book, in Sharp's Eagle, this white-coated Dutch battalion is left stranded. Now, as it happens, I don't think that regiment was actually in that position during the battle. And, but Sharp and Sergeant Harper and the others from the light company see their chance and make a rush for the unit's eagle. A brutal hand-to-hand -hand fight ensued. So let, let me just take a, a moment to read from the book to get a, a bit of a sense of the, of the fight that ensued. The standard bearer jumped out of the ranks to carry the precious eagle down the battalion to safety. But there was a crack. The man fell and Sharp heard Hagman's customary, got him. Then there was a new sound. More volleys, and the Dutch battalion shook like a wounded animal as the South Essex arrived on their flank and began to pour in their volleys. Sharp was faced by a crazed officer who swung at him with a sword, missed and screamed in panic as Sharp lunged with the point. A man in white ran out of the ranks to pick up the fallen eagle, but Sharp was through the line as well and he kicked the man in the ribs, bent and plucked the staff from the ground. There was a formless scream from the enemy. Men lunged at him with bayonets and he felt a blow on the thigh. But Harper was there with the axe. I mean, you know, why wouldn't you carry an axe into battle? And, so, and so, was, so was Denny with his ridiculously slim sword. And so the eagle was taken. And jubilantly, Sharp and Sergeant Harper returned to their battalion lines to find that Lieutenant Colonel Simerson had been relieved of his command. And I'm just going to go back to the book one last time before we discuss, uh, before we discuss this whole thing, because I think this is great. So back to, back to Bernard Cornwall. The trophy was low at his side, hidden in the press of men, but he dragged it clear so that the gilded statuette suddenly flashed in the light. He handed it, handed it up to Lawford. The battalion's missing colour, sir. It was the best Sergeant Harper and I could do. Lawford stared at the two men, at the tiredness beneath the powder stains, at the lines on their faces grooved with blood from scalp wounds, and at the black patches where bayonets had sprung blood into their green jackets. He took the eagle, disbelieving, knowing it was the one thing that would restore the battalion's pride, and hoisted it high into the air. Well, I'm getting goosebumps reading it. The South Essex, right. <laughs> so long scored by, scorned by the army, saw it and cheered, slapped each other's backs, hoisted their muskets triumphantly into the air, cheered until other battalions stopped to see what the noise was about. Above them on the Medellin, General Hill heard the excitement and trained a telescope on the battalion that had so nearly lost the battle. He caught the eagle in the lens and his mouth dropped open. <gasps> I'll be damned, bless my soul, the strangest thing, the South Essex have captured an eagle. There was a dry laugh beside him, and Hill turned to see Sir Arthur Wellesley. Sir, I'll be damned too, Hill. That's only the third time I've ever heard you swear. Now, oh, we mentioned that earlier. He took the glass from Hill and looked down the slope. God damn it, you're right. Let's go and see this strange bird. 
So, Sharp and Harper, they, they, they did the yeah. thing. <laughs> what do you make of all of that? Realistic? Did it happen? Did, a, did an eagle get captured at Talavera? No eagle at Talavera, unfortunately. Uh, eagles captured in the Peninsula War. We've got to wait quite a while, though. We've got to wait till 1811 uh, for an eagle to be captured in the Peninsula War. Uh, and that's all the way down the south at the Battle of uh, Barossa. Uh, not even with Wellington. It's uh, with uh, General Graham, who I was talking about earlier, who raised his own battalion. And uh, one of his uh, regiments down there, the 87th, uh, the Prince of Wales uh, Irish Regiment, uh, fight into uh, the middle of a column, hand-to-hand fighting. And lieutenant and, uh, and a sergeant, and I think the lieutenant's killed in capturing it. And the sergeant kind of rushes in and grabs it. And this is Sergeant Patrick Masterman of the 87th Regiment. And uh, he, he apparently you know, holds it off, and it's, it's hard not to do it with a slight Irish accent, so I apologise, because he says, Bejeebus, boys, I've got the cuckoo. <laughs> uh, I can't say Bejeebus without a slight Irish accent, but yeah. he apparently that is, that is what he said. Brilliant. He said, Bejeebus, I've got the cuckoo. Possibly the greatest quote in military history. You just don't get that in um, history of motorsports, for example, or food <laughs> history. No, no, it's it's got to be the Peninsula War to have Bejeebus Boy, I've got the cuckoo. And uh, there's not much written about what happened to uh, Patrick Masterman. Uh, he's certainly quite famous. The, the, the standard goes back to uh, Britain, it's presented, and uh, it's displayed in uh, the Royal Hospital Chelsea, uh, which is now you know, famous for the Chelsea pensioners. And it's actually um, stolen in 1852, the same year the Duke of Wellington dies. Uh, somebody breaks in through the ceiling, steals it, because they, they, they either were solid gold or they were gilded wood to paint it and people thought they were solid gold anyway. Um, so someone stole it and they instantly have a, a replica uh, made up. So um, the regiment uh, doesn't miss it out. But uh, yeah, we've got to wait a while. There's then in the rest of the peninsula war quite a few more eagles, for example, at, um, Salamanca, despite huge cavalry charges, which smashed through loads and loads of regimental commands, the cavalry kind of go on and don't capture any eagles. And two foot regiments, uh, one of which is the 44th East Essex, which the South Essex Regiment is very closely based on, uh, they capture uh, an eagle at Salamanca and then the famous two at Waterloo as well. So as you tell your story of... Um, both the Peninsula War and also if you're reading Sharp, um, the, the eagles definitely do start to crop up. And many of them are back on display in, uh, in British museums today. Brilliant. And one last question. Do we know, did the original ever turn up after it got stolen? Did you ever come across that in your research? No, never, never found it. it. There's some strange things in history that get stolen and just don't reappear. It's almost, some, I sometimes think that they're either, either too hot to handle or a combination that if they can be broken and um, and in broken up for parts, you know, for scrap, especially, you know, gold, it will make it easier um, to sell on. So there, there's other items I can think of in history. One of the Duke of Wellington's batons was stolen in the 1950s because it had diamonds in it. And it's never been recovered and probably never will be because sell the diamonds individually rather than trying to sell... Uh, an item that would be too recognisable. So unfortunately, that eagle is probably lost. We never know. Um, when uh, Duke Wellington's portrait was stolen from the National Portrait Gallery, um, it was found in a in a hedgerow. And I'm thinking of the 1966 World Cup as well. Um, the, the Duke of Wellington's portrait has got its own wonderful story. It's the one by Goya. and was in the National Portrait Gallery and it was stuck out of a, 
snuck out the gent's toilet window in the time before security cameras and uh, it disappeared for a couple of years. And if you watch Dr. No, the original James Bond, as he walks through Dr. No's lair, there's a painting of the Duke of Wellington because who would have a priceless oh, art to be stolen of the Duke of Wellington? A Bond villain, no one else. Perfect, perfect, love it. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, we should probably just finish our, our short narrative of the Battle of Talavera. We've kind of covered Sharp's role in it. Um, but, but, I mean, British victory, but uh, did it lead to any long-term success? And what did it mean for Wellesley? It's, it's a difficult one. Actually, um, Battle of Talavera wasn't one that was um, as widely celebrated in, in Britain, because the casualty rate was, was really high. Um, the French had lost about 7,200 men, uh, the British 5,300, and uh, many of those casualties uh, and died. So it, it was really difficult. However, for the Duke of Wellington connection, which is kind of my angle on history, um, it, it grants him his titles. He's then given Viscount, um, Viscount Wellington, which he chooses because of the similarity in the surname. Uh, he's advised that on his, on his brother. And he's also given a title of Talavera, which is um, often uh, quite common to give two titles. But he chooses uh, Wellington because it's similar to Wellesley. So it's easy to remember, make him famous, basically. And, and it really starts to bring his name from Sir Arthur Wellesley to Lord Wellington um, Viscount. It, it brings the start of that story of the Duke of Wellington, and he actually literally works his way up the ranks now from Lord now to Viscount and all the way up through the British aristocracy to Duke. And something I quite love is though after different battles he's promoted, he doesn't get the letters, the letters patent, um, giving him them because they are held in the House of Lords. So it's not until uh, he returns to Britain in 1815, as he gets all of his letters at once. It's like receiving all of your promotions, all of your Christmas bonuses in a single day um, for the last uh, about seven years. Um, and it really starts to build his name as it's one of the biggest, Talavera is one of the biggest set battles after, you know, there's, there's Vimero, which ended with the Treaty of Sintra, and there's some disgrace there. And Talavera now starts to set the scene from 1809 all the way through to 1814 and the next five years of continuous fighting. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it for today. Thank you. So there we have it, guys. I must say, I really enjoyed that interview. I got more of a conversation, really. And I hope to follow this format for one or two future episodes. Let me know if you liked it. Talavera was a brutal battle, but despite the casualties, it was a British and Spanish victory. A close one, mind, more like scraping through on away goals rather than a decisive one-sided pummeling. The French, unable to break the Allied line, were forced to withdraw, much to the relief of the exhausted Redcoats. But there was to be no glorious advance on Madrid for the British. Instead, another French army under Sult was soon threatening their rear. And, lacking supplies and with little support from their Spanish allies, Wellington, as we'll now refer to him, was forced to withdraw westward, back to the Portuguese border. It was a hard pill to swallow. But in the grand scheme of things, and with the benefit of hindsight, probably the right thing to do. In the next episode, I'm hoping to examine the next big battle of the war at Busaco, where another large French army will attempt to invade Portugal once more. We'll meet the new and improved Portuguese army as they answer the all-important question, will they stand? It's another great tale, and it's well worth subscribing to make sure you don't miss it. 
If you're watching this on YouTube, remember you can hear the audio only version on your podcasting app and vice versa. If you're listening to it and you want to watch the video, you can just search on YouTube for Red Coat History. Until then, ladies and gents, I wish you a Merry Christmas. Don't drink too much rum and please try and refrain from plundering the locals. Have a good one.